0: We are in number 249. "'Sir,' I began once, "'my father, you have no father,' Master replied, interrupting what I had been about to say. "'I'm sorry, sir.' It's interesting, he said, "'I'm sorry.' "'I'm sorry, sir.' I said, "'I meant my earthly father. "'That's better,' he replied. "'God alone is your true father.' I rarely heard him offer others this correction. In fact, it may have been the only time I heard him give it at all. I'd never really tuned into that part of it before. I'd heard Swami say this, but I I didn't really realize it was a unique instruction. Some people may think those words were too strong, but often he had a particular, if hidden, reason for what he said. Perhaps he sensed my father's opposition which later became apparent to my choice of a spiritual way of life. It was an interesting feature of my first two years as a disciple that every time I tried in meditation to visualize my guru, my earthly father appeared, first in my mind. Only by sustained effort was I able to substitute for that image the features of my guru. Very interesting, especially considering How Swami writes in The Path and says in other places that he had an essential lack of attunement with his father. He writes about how as a young child his his father was interested in the how of things and he instinctively, the philosopher, was always interested in the why and he tells in The Path about his father taking him under the house to show him how the doorbell worked and how completely uninterested he was and now he tried you know just to because it meant so much to his father to try to be interested in the things that his father was and he also writes how, it, how what a disappointment it was for his father that his own firstborn son was so out of sync with him his uh, his third son actually ended up being very much went into the same profession and was very much more in tune with um his father, Ray. But Swami also talks about how, um, he t- says it in The Path, but he talks about it more in another place or two, about how the, the the fact that the world that he lived in was so different from the world his father lived in, and how as a young child that discrepancy weighed on him because there would be a natural inclination to think that your father would know more about life and how to get along, which in a certain sense he did in the world that he was living in. And uh, how when Swami was nine and had that very high fever and delirium, and after that he wasn't as willing to let his own consciousness expand even into the light, Swami talked about how the, it, by the age of nine he realized um, how out of sync he was with the world around him and especially with his father and his father's world, and that really began to concern him. Prior to that time, he just lived in his own world, and so it wasn't only that he had that delirium, which, as he said, made him concerned about any altered states of consciousness, but also he was becoming anxious about his inability to fit into the world, and he was going to make some effort to try. So there's this sort of underlying... mm, what would you say? Anxiety about not belonging—that was characteristic of Master of Swami's young life. So his commenting here that Master had some particular purpose, not that Swamiji would ever have allowed his father to stop him, but he does comment. You know, it's I, one thinks of Swamiji as being so strong and self-directed. At the same time, he was he was from a different era, and grew up at a time when children didn't so readily defy their parents and he had a fundamentally somewhat traditional and respectful relationship with them. So he comments about how Master arranged that his father was in Egypt and his mother was on the boat on the way to Egypt. And it wasn't until then that he found Autobiography of Yogi. And he says, would he have allowed their undoubted opposition to have stopped him? or at least caused him to hesitate or even to doubt. And he said it was that McMaster just removed that whole possibility. But the fact that he didn't just unequivocally say it wouldn't have mattered what they thought. It was that, I'm glad that I wasn't tested in that respect. So what all of this says also to me is that we have to, we can't presume. I know in my own um, upbringing I, I, had a connection to my parents, but it wasn't, it wasn't as strong as my connection to my spiritual family. And I remember specifically talking to Swamiji about that. And he saw sometimes, a devotee deliberately incarnates where the karmic tie is not going to be too tight, because they they want to not live with their with their birth family. They want to be able to go to their spiritual family, and they don't want to be torn too much. And so I, I feel to a certain extent that's what I did. I had the good karma to come into a good family. But um, it, 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 the parents, especially, were not people with whom I have the same kind of tie that I have with, every, with all of my spiritual family. But I was still extremely impressed as time went on how complicated that relationship could be. And how even with all of that in place there's just there's something about that parental tie that and it's 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 partly just you owe them because parents have to give up i mean I only after seeing my friends as parents did I appreciate that It was harder to see from the ground up um what what they were doing for you, but they they do give up their own lives to a very large extent, and there's there's a debt of honor that's owed there but not greater than your spiritual one. Yes. Here it's coming. We have someone on the machine, so. Um, I'm just relating to myself because I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family and then, <coughs> excuse me, and my father died when I was seven. Seven. And then my grandmother, his mother, was sort of like the matriarch of the family. She was really sort of fanatical, I think. And over the years, I've thought about that, and I've thought... And then she moved away from the area, and I thought, on a spiritual level, that was a good thing because my life would have been entirely different. My mother followed Judaism sort of because that's what she was used to. She was actually pretty liberal, uh-huh. and uh, my life would have been entirely different. I think Master was intervening there. That's yeah. what I have felt since then. Yeah, it just took us... Took it's a, interesting. Yeah, because those, cause those, those uh, influences cannot be lightly discarded. I mean, I speak from my own experience because I really thought that I had separated myself from them um, decades before I actually did. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even... It was so in me Swami so talks about later, it was, the upbringing was so in me I didn't even know that it wasn't me. You know, you just think this is who I am and then in some moment or another you suddenly see the arbitrariness of many of your attitudes and realize you just took them in. I had an um, a interesting just moment. There were three, three of us. I'm the middle child, younger sister, older brother. And most of the time after we all... Well, my younger sister stayed with my parents longer, but my brother and I both left pretty early and never really lived again in the house. And then spouses and eventually a grandchild came into the picture. So it was not that often that the original unit was in in place together once we reached adulthood. But there was one time, and I just don't even know what caused it, but both my parents and all three of us were in the house together as adults, I was long since at and so and no spouses, no children, just us. And there was this extraordinary feeling of incredibly cellular, subconscious merging of energies that had always been slightly interrupted by the presence of others, but when there was nothing to interrupt it, we, the whole unit just went right back into that. And uh, because we'd come up as children, you know, it's all inculcated in you very small, uh, from a very small age, it was um, it was a real wake-up call to me to realize how, how profoundly we're formed by all those experiences and how we have to be vigilant to them and can't just constantly just fall back into those attitudes because they were the ones that were given to us. I mean, we can choose them and we incarnate in them because we have a certain attunement to them. But uh, they are arbitrary. Very, very, very arbitrary. Even after decades at Ananda, I, I woke up in my 50s and realized how much of my personality was still a reflection of my childhood. And I was shocked. It's the only thing I could say. I was absolutely shocked. Just, whoa. What, you know. And so Swami's Um, There was obviously something going on with the father, even though the karmic tie was with the mother, as Swami often said. The real karmic tie in the family was with his mother, and they all came with her. It wasn't that he didn't have a connection to them, but he would not necessarily come into that family for, for any of the others except for her, and then the whole unit came together. That was Swami's explanation too, when. Um, the teenagers at Ananda, the parents, the, abs- the answer the parents could give to the teenagers at Ananda when they would rebel against what was happening, was that they could say, well, it's not my fault, you chose me. And then <laughs> Brian Powers, Bajrang, who often was sort of the co- the uncle, who was the confidant to a lot of the teenagers, it was a nice system in the community, they would come to him and say, never in a million years would I have chosen, you know, just the the teenagers being upset. So Bhajan came to Swami and said, what do I say? And Swamiji's answer was, you choose the family sort of in a general sense. And you don't really actually pick out every single detail. So depending on what the parents were trying to put over on the kids, the answer may have been yes or no. (laughs) But nonetheless, the whole birth was chosen and whatever the package was, you have to take responsibility for it. It's such an ironic thing. I was talking to uh, one particular person uh, whose child inserted himself into a situation in which circumstances were not ideal, let's just put it like that. And then later had the chutzpah to blame the mother for circumstances not being ideal. I said, what is this, you know? You accepted, you accepted the child with enthusiasm, but you did not plan this. You know, this was, this was someone else's idea. The mother just laughed and said, oh, I could never say that. But of course it is true. It has to be true. So anyway, it all has its own parts. So, also, the fact that I rarely heard him offer others this correction. I've tended to take that statement of Swami's in a bigger sense. But was he preparing him? And and his father did, in the end, oppose. Although, interestingly, after his father died, other members of the family told Swami that his father was actually rather proud of the life Swami had lived. But Swami himself, he said his father never gave him that impression. And it was, it, was, it, was, it was Swami was sort of, he felt like his choice was incomprehensible to his father, who, who lived a very, you know, success in the world, take care of your family, kind of um, more, much more conventional, not religious at all. But a good man, a very good man, but just that. Okay, any, any other comments or thoughts? So, number 250. The master once said to me along these same lines, this is master speaking, my father remarked to me one day, I heard someone say he'd seen your guru give a flower to a woman. Ooh, what a statement. Of all things, I replied indignantly, master said, physical birth is something, but if ever I hear you say one more word against my guru, I shall disown you as my father forever. Oh my goodness. Just absolutely. And you know, Master's father was a disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya, and Sri Yukteswar was his fellow disciple but Master just to hear his guru scorned he just wouldn't put up with it. So there you have Master's own word on it. Quite powerful. I, Walter, was obliged a few years later to express very much the same words in a letter to my own father. Though I didn't offer him that drastic choice, I pleaded with him not to force me to it. Because it was the same thing. You know, Master Swamiji's father was trying to sort of exert a father's authority and and by various means try to win him back to the family nest from which Swami was lost and was in fact lost pretty much forever. in my own family, my parents mostly supported me, but sort of randomly over the course of many years my father decided at a certain point to question. So did my mother. My father, we were sitting at lunch. I was about 35, maybe 40 by then. Been at to 15 or 20 years. And uh, he just started. I don't, really don't know what prompted him. It he, he wasn't like, we, I don't think we were in litigation or anything like that. It wasn't like there was any, like nothing had changed. And uh, I think they just got tired of it. They thought that eventually I would come out, but I never did. And he just started, in his way, building a case. I said, you know, you raised me to be very independent, to think for myself, and to follow my own way, to have confidence in my own way. I said, that's what I've done. I thought you would be proud of me. <laughs> that was a little bewildering to him. Um, But then I also, and I told him, which was interesting, that I think even it's still true that Ananda was uh, 10% Jews, which is a much higher percentage than the world. And I I pointed that out to him too, that, you know, Jews are always in the forefront. This is the new movement. And so, you know, I'm out there, as we always have been, leading the way with some new ideas. That was a little disconcerting to him too. (laughs) But then much more seriously, I said, don't ask me to choose. You know. If you ask me to choose, you're not gonna, I'm not going to make the choice you want. So I said, I just said, I suggest you just drop this. And he did. My mother and I had a much more amusing exchange. At some point, my mother seemed to understand that we were also devoted to Jesus, which had always been true, but my mother had a way of um, reasoning things out in her own way. And she did not like to be she didn't like me to dispute her process. She wanted me merely to accept it, which was a bit of a difficulty between us because her process was always rather random to my from my perspective. So she decided that we were we were devoted to Jesus, that we'd become devoted to Jesus. I told her we were always devoted to Jesus, but somehow she decided it had just happened. And somehow, because it had just happened, now there was this sudden cultural Difficulty that had never actually been there before. And for reasons known only to herself, she just, this became a big deal for her. And she was lamenting this, you know, and she starts lamenting, if only we had given you an actual upbringing in Judaism, if only we had really, you know, made you understand your own tradition. My parents have never been practicing Jews. I don't know why this would come to them. But they just, this long thing like this, and I'm trying to reassure her by telling her, oh, it's no, it's dis- not really true, you know, it's completely different than that. And this little voice inside me says, let her take responsibility. So all of a sudden I changed my tune completely and I went with her. Yes, what a tragedy. If only then perhaps everything would have been different. What can we do now? I guess it's just too late. <laughs> and we did that for five or ten minutes. She relaxed and never brought it up again. <laughs> <laughs> you just, the karmas are odd. And at the very end of, I mean, my parents never, my father read, they actually, my mother read, and my father both read a number of the books. But we never, I don't know if they ever really understood them or knew what to do with them, but they didn't read. So I think that, you know, the karma of their being my parents caused them to actually read Autobiography of a Yogi. Understand, except I think that was another level. We never talked about it, but they did read it. Um, but at the very end of, well, I had two encounters with my mother. She was so adorable. One, she said something to the effect that I know a lot of people listen to you, but I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> I said, you know, for just a moment, because at first I w- I was trying to persuade her of something I thought was important. Then I said, oh, mother, that's so relaxing. You have no idea. <laughs> I said, I have to be, think about what I say because people take me so seriously knowing that you don't, you know, just like it, it doesn't make any difference. But uh, the other thing at the very end, just one day she kind of kind of looks off, you know, in the middle distance and says, I don't know why, I just like having you around. She's, no, she said that to my face. I don't know why, but I just like having you around. And then she looks off like this and says, Maybe it has something to do with what you're doing. <laughs> and I thought that that's enough. I'll take that. You know, the karma's there, it helps them. You just you have to live through these things. And it's also a test of our detachment and you know how much we're still trying to get them to approve and how much guilt we still carry, how much we think our Their happiness depends on us. It just goes on and on and on. Physical birth is something, but it is something. And Master took the trouble with Swami to help him work through it. In that strange way. And then Swami has that, I I, back up here, he has that funny thing about how his father's face kept inserting himself. Was it his father's willpower trying to keep him from his guru? You know, that could be an explanation. Who knows what it was? Or just the habit of the father that being the authority figure and then needing to substitute the guru. Weird, very strange. Chittambhar is reminding us that Swami said he had trouble visualizing Master altogether. He had to look at a picture to remember what he looked like because his experience of him was so fluid he couldn't hold that physical form. That's a very interesting statement, isn't it? But you know, Swamiji many years later talked about how he didn't notice the color of people's eyes even though people who had been with him for years, because he never saw that, he never saw the, fi- the fixed physicality of people. Instead, he felt the energy and felt the consciousness. And he says also in that story that we tell about how he would recognize people, um, even, either he would recognize a meeting for the first time in this lifetime, or he would recognize them, if he hadn't seen them a while in this lifetime, He said sometimes I don't recognize people but then as he said their eyes come into focus and I remember who they are and that story when I told it was Chitambar told a story exactly like that about how many times Swami met him and then how, but still there would be this moment when Swami would look into his eyes and then immediately he would remember exactly who he was but because the faces that we see that was Bella in the end of her life, very end of her life Bella, um, Bingham at that point, Potapovskaya when she was in the last days of her life. She said, I'm looking at thousands of faces and I know they were all mine. And it was just feeling like, so what does it make if I lose matter if I lose this one? I've had thousands of faces. So if you think of being with Swami or with each other for long periods of time, and I mean, to keep track of all those faces would be very hard to do, but not to keep track of the essential spirit. So that would be how he would describe it. He would find the, the, the part of us that he, that he always knows. Very interesting. Ah, so, oh, someday, that will be all of us. Any questions or comments? Yes. Of course, it's a matter of degree, though. Yeah, of you know, I certainly know what people look like. I mean, I... One always tries to relate on a higher level that, well, but I know what people's features are like and what their eyes are like. I can't imagine I can't imagine not knowing it. That's sort of what I mean. I can also feel their spirit, but I can't imagine not recognizing their faces or knowing the color of their eyes. I think we're doing it a lot more than we realize. You know when is the most interesting time when that happens is when you watch the choir sing. Those of you who are in the choir might not get to see it as much as those of us who watch the choir and you watch a big choir at Ananda village or anywhere everybody begins to look the same. I mean, people can be 50 years difference in age sometimes standing up there in size and shape and everything. But when they all start singing the same music, they all start looking the same. It's really, it's really fascinating to watch it. Uh, you can still, I can still recognize people, but they're, all the, this, the differences begin to blend and you're just feeling that ray of consciousness research has shown that when people sing in a choir after singing together for a while their heartbeats. really isn't that interesting the heartbeats sync sink after you, if you sing in a choir together for a while well wow isn't that fun well that's marvelous I'm sure that happens with us because we're already so attuned to each other anyway that was Swami's answer when uh, years ago when the choir was tour, on tour in Italy And it was a choir that was brought together from, mostly from America, but just from everywhere. Fifty singers from all different places. And when someone in the audience said, "Oh, you sing so beautifully together, you must practice all the time. And um, I think it was Gitanjali, the girl, and she said, oh no, we've hardly practiced it all together. And somebody said, no, that's not true. He said, because we meditate and do the same spiritual practices, we're actually practicing all the time. Most of the effort when you bring a group together, is to get them in tune with each other. And since we are already so much in tune with each other, just to learn the songs, it's like the last stage of rehearsal. He really corrected her. He said that that might have been technically the right answer, but it wasn't the right answer. Interesting. All right. So number 251. The master said to me one day, Keep on becoming good. You are doing better now. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't you have loved to be told that? Keep on. You're becoming good. I answered him, I've had a few things to work on, haven't I? You can see how sweet their relationship was. Yes, replied the Master. (laughs) I've had moments with Swami where I've said something like, I've been a big doofus, haven't I? And he would say, yes. You're Just like no, no space around it. Just, uh-huh, yeah, that's right. Yes, replied the master. There was too much intellectual aloofness, just in quality. I know, I said. It has been a strong habit with me. I'm still working on it. Habits, the master replied, can be changed in a day. They are nothing but concentration of the mind. You've been concentrating one way, simply concentrate another way and you'll completely overcome the habit. This was basically the same advice he had given to his early student, Jyotin. That's an interesting Swami talking about that intellectual aloofness. Uh, it's a, I think it's because it's a quality that I've always had too, I also understand it. I feel like all the years before I came to Ananda, I, I sort of stood off to one side of everything that happened. I just never could understand. Aloof is exactly the word. I could never understand how to integrate with the world around me. Mostly because it didn't make any sense to me. That was the main reason I couldn't. I could never figure out what they were doing. I just couldn't. I just couldn't grasp it. The only thing I could grasp actually was fantasy, which was the theater. When I got into a, the, into theater, I understood theater because you pick up a role and you play it. That I could understand. You put on a fantasy. That I got. But the real world was totally confusing to me. But it was confusing like that, like just protecting yourself by standing aloof from it. And just thinking it and and having your own... And Swamiji talks a lot about that, about that intellectual pride, lack of devotion. And uh, somebody said to me just recently, and it was beautifully expressed, they were talking about the only talent they have, which is actually a, a beautiful talent, is the ability to blend in with others and help them. And I thought, you know, that is exactly it. When I was first at Ananda and finally was somewhere where I wanted to be part of it, and, and But still, it was still, and I would say even it's just part of my upbringing, it's something I've had to learn. I remember um, spending deliberately spending time with women who had that capacity to blend their consciousness with other people. And I, I remember following them around like a little apprentice without actually, I never sort of said it, but I would just try to understand how how not to be aloof. You know, how just to participate. And I, I Paula was one of them, Kirtani was another, um, Jacqueline, Jamanas another, who just, it was just natural to them. Durga, of course, has been my main teacher in this way, just to just blend with people. And it's um, it's much more powerful than to always hold, be holding your own self separate but it's 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 a habit that's just exactly what master said to him you know to not meet people with the heart but just to meet them first with your thoughts very a very for those of us who are inclined that way that was what i also learned from swamiji when i was trying to understand the power of his mind and i observed his posture which, which his posture was that, that it, on, on the plane of his physical being, his heart was a little ahead of his forehead. And, and my posture, which I've worked hard to change, is to lean out like that. You know, I, I've, I've never developed this, which some people do who are really needing to keep that protected, but I have a tendency to lean And it's just, I mean, it's just the physical manifestation of I want to push first with my idea and then afterwards I'll decide whether it's safe to really engage. And Swamiji had trained himself, and what's interesting is he trained himself just to enter in first, just to blend first and then have the mind follow the heart. And that was what, why everyone felt that he was your best friend. He could just make anyone feel that he belonged to them because on on this is on the level, you know the mind is taking everything apart and putting it back together, but on this level, the heartbeats are synced, we're just all in it together, we're just breathing, we're all here very it's very interesting, very interesting difference in life. I mean Palo Alto is mental in the extreme, and uh, it's sort of fun, you know if you're like that this was did i I talked in this class, did I about that that uh that little hoo-ha, brouhaha at Google because one of the engineers wrote about the women and he accused the women of being more interested in having a balanced life and uh, it was a big, it was a big, uh, among other things, he accused women of having certain extremely laudable qualities which disqualified them for the utterly imbalanced world in which they were living and instead of the women standing up and saying, you're damn right, and what's wrong with you guys? Instead, the the male engineer got fired. It's just, it's a crazy world we're living in. Yeah, one of them was. Women are are not as good as engineers because they want to balance life. We are really in trouble, friends. Okay. Number 251. Oh, no, this is, I just read that. Um... Oh, but then also he says "These habits can be changed in a day. They are nothing but a concentration of the mind. You've been concentrating in one way, simply concentrate in another way. That is really something to write on the refrigerator, isn't it? <laughs> because we do tend to become quite involved in the way we are. And even if it's not working very well for us, we have this complete commitment to the fact and I mean, I give I give long classes about the vrittis and the helplessness of shifting and so on like that. But Master totally is contradicting it and telling me that I'm dead wrong here. Habits can be changed in a day. All I mean, everything about us is just a pattern of energy that's just so profoundly important. There is nothing going on but patterns of energy. Patterns of energy are just energy. Redirect them and they become a different pattern. So in Principle, and I'll say in fact, all of these characteristics about ourselves that are such a drag could just be dissolved like that. And, you know, Master wants us to at least capture that possibility so that it, if, if nothing else it gives us, it gives us the power to persevere. And my favorite way of thinking about it is error is finite and perfection is infinite. So no matter how big the number of errors that you're going to make, it's finite, and therefore it will end before infinity. <laughs> and so every time you go the wrong way, let's just check one off the list. However long it's going to take, it will end, and when it ends, it ends. You he know. No, he didn't. He didn't even say easy or. He just said habits he can be changed. They are nothing but concentration of the mind. You've been concentrating in another way. Simply concentrate another way and you'll complete... Yes, he's right. No, but I think we should just pretend it is. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> okay, number 252. Uh, this is... We're back to men and women. Men think to possess their women, said the master with a chuckle. He must have been so amused by what he saw. But women tend to view their husbands, no matter how prominent or powerful, as their own children." <laughs> there you have it, the human comedy. He <laughs> just watched the delusion on all sides. Number 253. I think we've given sufficient energy to men and women. I'm quite ready to move on. Master had given all his time to others. At last, the Divine Mother gave him a period of respite in the desert. Speaking of the peace and solitude there, he remarked to me one day, whenever there is a well, thirsty people gather. Sometimes, however, the well likes to be quiet for a while. I was slow in catching what he meant. Then I understood it, and the Master said with a quiet smile, I was speaking of myself. You know, it's it's sweet how much uh, intuitive communication there is. Master said it, and, and and Master didn't finish until Swami himself had caught the thought. Um, S- Swami, in some circumstance, I think he said Master used to do this too, but I know Swami did. Sometimes when Swami didn't make something clear, and you would sort of want him to make it clear, We would say, well, oh, just use your intuition, meaning... You're right, I didn't make it clear, but my thought is clear. You just pick up my thought. I mean, it wasn't like something he did on a regular basis, but he would do it. You know, if if I said the wrong thing, and you know I said the wrong thing, you just figure out what's right. You just catch it like that. And uh, it was fun, because a lot of times you really could. The funniest time, though, was when I was being very literal, the opposite. This was way back, like 71 or 72. Some of you have heard this story before, but... Uh, he had a phonograph record of Jacqueline Dupree playing a beautiful cello um, piece. I don't know what it was. And he used to love to listen to it sometimes. And the piece that came right after, he wasn't as fond of it. So for one evening for some reason, he and I and um, certainly Seva and perhaps Kalyani, I don't remember what else had happened, but we were listening to it. And as soon as it finished, he said, Asha, would you stop it? Like that. And I, I got up and I, I was going to turn off the photograph record. I was halfway to the phonograph record. And all of a sudden, I had this like global sense. What could he have been telling me to stop? You know, just like everything about delusion in me. <laughs> and this, this very weak little voice. I said, did you mean the phonograph record? <laughs> like that. <laughs> And he, he knew immediately, and we both began to laugh. He said, yes, dear, the phonograph record. But just like these things come over you, this total... Because he said it very very strongly. Asha, please stop that, okay? <laughs> logic, intuition, logic went, bounced back and forth. <laughs> but a lot of times in conversations with Swamiji, half would be spoken and half would be not spoken. There would just, you know, it would just be it's true with everyone, but it was just somehow more notable with him because it was just part of the just part of the flow. And you know, it was a joke that he he began to call everyone around him Leela. And it became a question of intuition. You had to figure out which Leela he might have meant, you know. <laughs> who was it he actually really wanted? Leela was able to tell whether he actually meant Leela or not. The rest of us had to figure out who he wanted. <laughs> All right, any other questions or thoughts? Number 254. Vance Milligan was not yet legally of age when he came to Mount Washington. He left later in obedience to his mother's wishes. When he grew older, he returned, but this time it was with his mother's sanction. It is good you have her permission, the master remarked to him. Without it, you should still have come. But it is even better that she does approve. Remember, you are God's child for eternity, not for this one lifetime only. So here we are, the other side of all that we were talking about, respecting your parents. And this is all about where there's Dharma, there's victory. When there's a a lower, a higher duty negates a lower duty. So honor your father and your mother, except if they want you to honor them more than you honor your commitment to God. And then it ceases to be your duty. And there's this wonderful story. When Swami Shankara was only a child, he felt inspired to leave home for God. His mother tried to dissuade him. Shankara, instead of pleading with her, what what a consciousness, jumped into a nearby river and let a crocodile catch him. See, mother, he cried out, I will let the crocodile pull me under if you don't agree to my leaving home. Even at that young age, you see, he had spiritual power. Well, what could she do? Hastily, she gave her consent. Shankara then made the crocodile release him. He swam to shore and straight away began his historic mission. Huh. I, in, in other versions of that story, Shankara adds the line, Mother, you're going to lose me one way or another so you might as well just let me go. Years later, the master continued. Shankara cried out suddenly, I taste my mother's milk. She is dying. Contrary to the Brahminical code regarding renunciates, he went to his mother and helped her in her final final moments. Then with a divine fire emanating from the palm of his hand, he cremated her body. Yeah. But also when you think about, uh, well, of course, the karma between them, but that he was just a child and he walked away from her, she gave him birth, but she didn't raise him, he raised himself in a spiritual way, but the tie was still that powerful. It's, I think we often really don't know what's really going on, we just, we just can't tell. And the masters, you know, just come in from all these different angles um, with these experiences and show us at least a little bit of the potential. I had that, I had that moment when Paula took her last breath, when I, we were all in the room with Paula and she stopped breathing and I felt an astral wind, which I, which I, I, I want to say I saw, I suppose I saw it sort of inside myself. It felt like an angel, that just huge angel that, that just went over my head with this enormous whoosh. I don't know whether it was Paula herself who, who had transformed into that or whether it was the angels who came to take her, I really couldn't say. But, but simultaneously with that was this extraordinary realization that Paula and I had this soul union, um, soul friendship, I mean, I knew we were friends because we were. We saw each other, you know, regularly. We were very fond of each other, but if you had asked me, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have known that. You know, I just wouldn't have known. But I felt it was like we're all living uh, on such a different level than we know that when the the veil is stripped away, then something completely other happens. So here's Shankar. He's born to this woman, and of course. Just the you know the act of uh, growing a child and giving birth to it takes a tremendous commitment on the part of a woman and just suddenly she's leaving and now his karma to her comes active again and w- I mean what th- they did two things for each other. I mean she gave him a body and then he went back to her to give her, I'm sure spiritual freedom at least on a very some very high level of that. and in between, where where was the relationship? But who knows on on other levels where it was happening? You know, there's so much. Uh, someone like Shankaracharya, of course, was conscious all the way through. Swamiji made a very interesting statement once when he said, um, "He feels like the process of of realization is that you just gradually become more conscious of what's going on all the time anyway." And this came up in the context of, um, it was actually another spiritual teacher came and asked Swami questions. And one of the questions he asked was, he said, you know, the, many of my students, he called them disciples, many of my disciples have dreams about me. He said, in which significant exchanges happen. And then this teacher said, I have no awareness of that. And he, I think he was concerned you just didn't know how you didn't know how to relate to it and that was where swami talked about you know we can be acting on much higher levels but we don't know it and then as our consciousness expands all those fields begin to integrate a little bit but elsewhere in this book remember master said to uh, said to the disciples you need to tell me things it's not that i couldn't know them but you need to tell me because it needs to be brought to my attention And in light of not knowing what we're really doing, he also, Swami talking about the astral world, talking about Paula after she died, because Paula had said to him, I hope they have a job for me in the astral world because you know I like to be busy. And Swami assured her that they did. Um, Let's see, what was the phrase there? Oh, but but like, you know, that man having, uh, people having dreams of him, and sort of things happening when you're not conscious of them, Swami's answer was, especially about dreams, the superconscious mind never sleeps. The brain sleeps, but the superconscious doesn't. And so therefore the brain can go to sleep and the superconscious just keeps going. And about having a job in the astral world, he just said, nothing happens when you die so whatever the force of your consciousness is it will just continue without interruption and the same thing about when you go to sleep just because your brain is asleep doesn't mean you've lost interest in helping people and so if on another level you can help you just you just will why wouldn't you, you it sort of takes all the mystery out of it and it doesn't you don't even have to be a great soul for any of it to happen it just happens because that's what our sincere intention is why would we why would we waste all that time? Um, but coming back again, it just, it just comes back to this. I was speaking of Paula and this feeling of um, spiritual connectedness. Durga had that beautiful dream where a whole huge group of people were standing at the village, everybody holding hands, remember? And then she said every so often somebody would ascend and and in the dream she realized that when somebody would ascend it was they had become liberated, they'd become spiritually free, which was beautiful in itself. But she said the most notable feature of the dream was nobody cared that it wasn't themselves when it happened. Because the family knew that if any one of us reached that state of spirituality then all of us would be uplifted by it. So we were, she said, we were just equally happy and never stopped to think, oh, I wish it was me. Isn't that a beautiful way to think about it? But that's the um, spirit, you know, that we want to bring into ourselves and just live that way all the time. Blend in and then try to be helpful. You know, it's a wonderful way to think. Okay, let's take a few moments break. No, it's a, that was an important revelation. I'm really glad you shared it. We all shop at Trader Joe's and Costco and, and we all have the same pens, we all have the same food, yeah. We all do the same. I mean, I gradually get concerned about it sometimes when I open other people's refrigerators and it has exactly the same stuff that I have because we all shop at the same stores and just gradually our, our whole beings are just gonna meld together and the unity will not be spiritual. Okay. Mm -hmm. Ready? Anything else that needs to be said before we launch forward? Or wants to be said? Need is a relative word here. (laughs) Okay, number 255. Master says, don't go into the city, he used to tell the new monks. This ashram is your city, It has everything you need. It's just living as we do in the middle of a very enticing environment in which there's many um, things that could be of interest to us. It's always a very interesting balance point between just accepting the life that we have and also holding ourselves back from it. When we lived with Swami at Ananda Village, and actually all the years that I've known Swami, he would go shopping, he would go to restaurants. In the early years we used to go to movies before there were videos. He, he he just interacted with the world around him and he took us with him. It wasn't like he just went by himself. He would always take us with him. So the model that he set was much more in the middle. At the same time, I've certainly become conscious of uh, solving, well, this is how Stephen Levine put it in his book about death and dying, which was written decades ago now, but he talked about how we are accustomed to feeling some um, vibration, a, a, a vibration in our consciousness, and we are accustomed to solving it by, by using our body to create some physical response. And so we feel a little uncomfortable, we'll go up and, you know, stretch at the window. We feel a little hunger, we'll go get something to eat. We feel a little lonely, we'll call up a friend. There's some vibration in the consciousness where we feel a little unsettled. That's the word I was looking for, a little unsettled. And we'll use our bodies to do something. And then he talks about the process that happens in if a person dies doesn't die suddenly, where gradually, little by little, the capacity to use your body begins to be taken away from you. And he was talking about helping people die and he talks about this intense restlessness that sometimes dying people have, almost to the point of hysteria, because their consciousness signals some unsettlement and they have no physical capacity to solve that problem of consciousness through their bodies and how panicky people can get about that just because they don't know what to do. And then he talks about how they will often transition through that and realize that the problems, as, as Stephen put it, the problems of consciousness can be solved on the level of consciousness, which is a phrase that I've always kept in my mind, not that I'm strict in the way I live, but I always still keep it in my mind. if this is a problem in my consciousness, can I resolve it on the level of consciousness or do I need to do some outward action in order to bring myself back to a comfortable state? Now, I have to say that and I I condition that by saying how much Swami interacted with people and with the world around him. And um, the Stanford Shopping Center was one of our, quote, main pilgrimage spots here. And invariably, when he would come to visit, and he used to like to go to Fry's. Fry's was a, Fry's was an equal pilgrimage spot. So I mean, always liked to see what Dwapar Yuga was doing technologically. And it was uh, much more, uh, before the internet took over so many different things, it was really the place where you could find. And he always enjoyed going to Stanford Shopping Center. We'd walk up and down and look at the flowers and look at the pretty shops and stop and have a cup of tea and you know, he ne- he didn't just hold us up in the house and have us just stay there. But at the same time within myself, I'm, I've been watching, and uh, especially, of course, when I was in seclusion these last eight weeks where there was just pretty much nothing. I could go out the door and I could walk to the end of the driveway and walk back. Wow, big outing. You know, and maybe there would be the horses there and I would have a little time with the horses. But... Maybe a new wildflower would have come up, you know, and then bingo, we're just back in this house with nothing going on. But it was very, when when the options were gone, also the, you, your mind just didn't go where, it, there was no place for it to go. It had to just, that's what seclusion does for you. It, it has to come back because you don't have any other choices and you discover this whole way of being The end of all of this is the Swami's uh, Master's advice here is something to keep in mind. You know, our lifestyle is not fanatical so we have to also balance it, that's all I'm saying. But it is to keep in mind, where am I going and why am I going there? And do I really, you know, is it going to be helpful to me? Can I pause for just a moment and see if instead I can bring myself to inner calmness before, even if I then go out But we we had many wonderful experiences with Swamiji out doing things. And Swami tells us too about many things that Master um, did. But he's also, he was talking to young monks who are coming to live up at Mount Washington in a circumstances where there were no particular rules. Bear in mind, you know, it was never organized until Swami got there and that's the last two years of Master's life. So people would come and live at Mount Washington and there was no clear idea of what you were supposed to do. So he would say, you know, don't just think you just sleep here and that you can just go run around. You know, try to find what it is that you're leaving to find, see if you can find it here. It's a, and it's a good good mental discipline, of course. The the early years at Ananda Village we were very privileged in a very real sense because we had very few very few people that owned a car. We had just a few cars among us. We had just very little money. And we were very far from everything, and we didn't have electricity, cell phones hadn't been invented, computers hadn't been invented, and so basically we couldn't do anything. There was nothing you could do. You you had to just stay there. When I was running the, and also because it was such a tiny place, if you went anywhere, everybody would know you'd gone somewhere and would want to know where you had gone and why if it wasn't... If it was at all out of the ordinary, it wasn't like living here where you can just drive off the property and nobody has a clue. It was just I, one time when someone didn't show up for the kriya. Swamiji that called me the next day or said to me the next day, "So and so wasn't at the kriya. Why don't you go find out why he wasn't there?" I mean, it was just like, how would he? How could he not be there? That was when I went and asked him. I said, "Why didn't you come?" He said, "I didn't feel like bowing down to the gurus last night." <laughs> I reported that to Swami and Swami said, I can understand that. (laughs) It was just because it was completely at ease but we needed to know. You wanted to know where were you. But when you have no options it's actually very relaxing because you just, you know, there's no point in having desires that don't have a chance of being fulfilled. People who had real desires left. But if you were just there with no money and no options you just found a way to get along. Sometimes it's fun to play that just pretend i don't have any choices what would i do yeah being without internet as i was for 8 weeks was very interesting i loved it i loved having the choice taken away i don't like having the choice I'm trying to figure out how i can dismantle it but i need to be engaged you know so it's it's the middle ground is the hard one the either or is the same is easy okay number 256 At a Christmas banquet, looking around, he remarked, Divine Mother sent me all these souls that I might drink her love in all these forms. Isn't that sweet? I was uh, working on this little piece of writing today about, uh, it was one of the transcribed sermons that Rambhakta works on. And I was talking about the fact that how we so often think That if we're not behaving up to the highest imaginable standard that we can impose upon ourselves, that God will lose interest in us. That we have this thought in our mind that we are always earning God's love and his care. And that we're always in jeopardy of falling below the standard and losing it. And that's all, that's just an evil projection of our own hearts. It's, just, it's nothing but that because we ourselves are evaluating and giving and withholding on a rather constant basis and so we just create God in our own image and think that he is. When it's, it's so hard for us, it's so difficult for us to understand the concept of unconditional love and the fact that the masters do not see our weaknesses. All they see is our divine potential. And so that's where he said, God gave me all these forms so that I could drink her love through all of them. I mean, that tells you what he sees. In, uh, in one of the stories in the book about Swami, um, a woman writes about how it is satsang. For, for a moment her consciousness shifted into Swami's consciousness and she felt like she was looking at the room through his eyes. And, and you know, she really shifted completely. And she realized that she felt what he was seeing. And he had said something to this effect in that moment. He just, she just saw that everybody was just a radiant form of light. And that all of the specifics of our personalities, which are so uh, dominant in our self-definitions and in our definitions of others, she said, from that perspective, they're just not there. And in another one in this book, so, uh, Master speaks of, "If you could see the world as I see it, you would see that it's just nothing but shimmering light. And that and all of this is just a dream. That's From their perspective, that's, that's real. I mean, whenever one begins to feel that possibility that God is not caring for me, that Master is not right here with me. Try to shift yourself into what that world what their world looks like and how you look in their eyes. It's just it's a wholly different way of thinking about it and well worth cultivating. Yeah. All right. Number two five seven. Those who are with me, he once told me at his desert retreat, I never have any trouble with just a glance. See, look how how Master confided in Swami. This is also interesting. Master's explaining to Swamiji how he works with people. Swami was 22 years old, Master was at the end of his life, and yet Master's... I mean, Swami tries in a a modest way, Swami has tried to make us understand the degree to which Master treated him differently. His uh, cousin Bet said, and I wrote this in the book about Swami she said, uh, Master, Swami was clearly the apple of Master's eye, is how she said. And I said uh, to her, why do you say that? What was it? She said, I don't know. She said, it was just obvious. That's how she put it. And later when I I told Swami about the, that was, when I started that book I interviewed relatives and friends of his. So I interviewed her for the book. And I said to Swami that I, I asked him, because for the sake of writing the story, why would she have said that? You know, what was it? And Swami just said very quietly, he said, "I I couldn't say it, but I was." He just knew it. And in fact, um, Swamiji said once toward the end, he said, "I was." He said, "I I wasn't one of the men there." He said, "I was the man there." He said, "There was just." Um, there was just no one else. I mean, there were there were good devotees—Bhaktananda, Ananda, Moy, and Abhimalananda, and you know others that were good. But there was just this order of magnitude. I mean, it was a very—I was very odd when Swami said that, but I mean, he was—he didn't want to emphasize it because it was too inappropriate. But nonetheless, he wanted me to understand. He said it was just that—that that, like that, really, Master saw what he had in Swami and just began to train him. And he was, he was training Swami for something that no one else was anywhere near. That's what he meant by that. You know, he was helping the others and they all lived their lives. But you can see by what none of them did compared to what Swami did, what Master was dealing with there. So here we are out at the desert retreat and much much of that relationship happened at the desert, uh, much of it when no one else was around. Very interesting, Lila. Those who are with me, he once told me at his desert retreat, I never have any trouble with. Just a glance with the eyes is enough. It is much better when I can talk with the eyes. I just wilt when I have to scold outwardly. All those who are with me, most of them, anyway, are saints from before. What he meant, I think, was all those who are in tune with me, Swami says parenthetically. I love this line. Sir, I said, what about those who don't seem all that saintly? <laughs> well, some of them are fallen saints. <laughs> I was thinking of myself, sir, I explained. Master responds, it is better to have neither superiority nor an inferiority complex replied. Whatever you are, give it to God. It's very sweet. Most of those who are with me, who are in tune with me, have been saints from the past. Did I mention to you what I read somewhere about one of among reasons why a master would come in to someone like William or um, Ferdinand and so on, is because his disciples needed that kind of experience. And master thought it would be best if he accompanied them. I mean, that was not... I didn't get that out of Swami's writings. But I got it out of somebody else's comment. I don't even remember where it came from. But I thought, now that is very interesting, isn't it? Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Um, I don't know if the master would be compelled by the disciples, but one of the things that happens when a master incarnates is that his his, his mission becomes limited and defined by the circumstances... into which he is incarnated and by the needs of his disciples. So you would think, I mean, being a warrior and many of the things that he went through um, and that the disciples had to go through with him. he, He talked about Norman being his giant and what a good fighter he was. I think he spoke about Jerry Torgerson as also being a really good fighter. I mean, he was a general and he needed really good soldiers. And there were some, just like As a disciple, you try to understand what the master asks of you. You can see if the master's coming in to be a warrior and he's going to have to conquer, he's going to want to have with him disciples who know how to fight. And he's going to really appreciate disciples who know how to fight, who don't shirk from the task at hand and are not too delicate to pick up their weapons and go bash the enemy. It's a peculiar thing, isn't it? Because that's what he's really talking about. He's talking about warfare. But he's talking in a very positive way about these disciples. They were strong for me when I needed them to be strong that way. So you can then stand back and think, um, well, yes, that would be something worth learning. Just like Arjuna and Krishna. Krishna drags him into battle and Arjuna's supposed to fight and he's supposed to kill his own relatives and Krishna's not very sympathetic about (laughs) Arjuna's obvious objections to doing that. So you can see, Master, there. I, I, I mean, I, I don't feel like I've been that kind of soldier very recently. So it's it's an um, almost an impossible thing for me to imagine. But I know men and women. It's not just that I'm in a female body. Several women friends of mine just feel themselves to be those kinds of soldiers. This one woman that I, I know, she lived at Ananda for a while. She's a very small person. Um, approximately my size, but 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 bonier, you know. So she was really, she really looked small. She was bony. She drove this great big Jeep, this great big car. It was just ludicrous. And she bought it herself. And I sort of joked with her once and she said, I know, she said, but this just feels like my car. <laughs> and she said at a different point that either she intuited or some psychic told her, that for many, many lifetimes she'd been a very big man but had just become so dependent and so identified with that huge physical strength that she just needed to balance the reality. But that's how she explained the car. Like in her own self she was still this big man who needed a big car and the fact that she sat in it could, you know, hardly. (laughs) She just, she didn't see that. She felt whatever it was. You know, there's just all these different levels that are going on all the time. That's why we can't take ourselves too seriously. We just can't. Um, we do, but we need to be a little bit light about what we've engaged in here. It's really interesting what you think what else was here. Oh, yes. But then, Master also talking about, you know, just communicating primarily with the eyes, with a look, with a word, and then saying things that, like even Swami talking earlier about you know, your father. No, I mean my earthly father. Why did he say that? He didn't explain it. And then sometimes Master was more fierce, but still that wasn't how he wanted us to understand it. We wanted, he wanted us to understand it by attunement. Which is why Swamiji struggled so hard against the image of Master that SRF began to um, embrace. And then it it was many people who never even knew Master who had their picture of him from what had been told to them. And that picture became increasingly supportive of this extremely rigid, narrow, and so many times the statements would be made. And Swami actually, on different occasions, took some of the young SRF monks to task for the way they talked about Master, acting as if he had a temper that he could, you know, that he was harsh. It's just it's, where, where did that those thoughts come from? This is Master describes how he really worked with his disciples, which is with the vibrations, not with, not with rules, not with judgments, not like this. Um, let's see, there was a thought with that one. What was it? It, it also, it, it's. Oh, it was, it was um, that story that I told about the one of the sisters who left after twenty years. Oh, when she put a a scarf over the altar of her room in the convent there at SRF and one of the, whoever the senior nun was, Master would not have approved. It's like, Master wouldn't have cared. Where does all that come from? We need to be very, very careful in our own hearts. It's It's not that we're being told things like that. But there's a certain security in that kind of rigidity. And we have to be careful not to impose it on each other. And we have to be extremely careful not to impose it on ourselves. It's just, you know, this is... What you have to think about is you have to think about the most perfect kind of best friend. You know, if you're fortunate in your life to have had that and if you haven't had it, if you can imagine it. You know, just the most perfect kind of best friend where you know, no matter what you do, that friend is just always going to be with you. There's just no way you can drive that person out of your life. They may tell you that you are a chump, and they're growing tired of you being such a chump, but it never touches the essential friendship. And that you yourself, you know, can imagine the sense of total relaxation that that kind of friendship brings. That's what we're working with with the master. Because in that kind of confidence, that's what gives us the courage to change. You know, we just, if we're scared all the time, look at little kids. We have this hardest thing with our school. I mean, now we've we've actually crossed over into high school, which is going to be really an adventure. Even in our school here, when I was the admissions director, which I was for seven years, we didn't have a school office. It was a telephone line on the counter of our refrigerator, of our kitchen, And when that phone rang, I picked it up and I said, Ananda, school, this is Asha, can I help you? No matter what was going on, It's to give the impression that we actually had a school. Um, And trying to persuade parents to let their children come to our school, and actually this is one of the mindsets I began to develop. They were perfectly happy to send their children when they were five or six, seven, eight. Maybe. But by the time they were nine, if they were having too much fun in school, obviously they weren't learning anything. If they weren't suffering, then something was wrong with our educational system. And the belief in high school that you really have to suffer in order to learn anything is so ingrained that we're going to have a real story to sort that one out. But I would say to the parents, do you do your best work when you're uncomfortable and scared? You know, like, why do you think your children when they're uncomfortable and scared, will learn better than if they're not. So you have to ask yourself, in my relationship to Master, why would he want me to be uncomfortable and scared? You know, what are the chances of my actually being able to rise to the occasion? And how much better it would be if I understood that he really is there to help me. And in this, I need to be totally comfortable and not at all afraid the little mantra I've come up with recently that has helped me a lot, I have this internal conversation that says, well, sir, what are we going to do about this? (laughs) Which is, yeah, it's kind of a mess. I did kind of, you know, spill the milk pretty big in the kitchen and there's a big mess. What are we going to do about this? I'm going to tell one more story and then I'll stop. It's just a story about a child. This man who grew up to be a very good scientist He gave a lot of credit to his mother, and he talked about when he was two years old, he tried to pick up the half-gallon milk carton and he couldn't get it into the refrigerator and it fell and it spilled all over the floor. And so his mother, understanding, she did several things. First she said, well, now that it's spilled, I bet you want to play in it, don't you? (laughs) So first she just let him play, you know, because it was all over the floor and it was just fascinating, it was going everywhere. And then the next thing she did was she took a milk an empty milk carton and she filled it with water and they went outside and he learned how to carry it. You know, it was just like that's what happens. Oh, you spilled the milk. You've made a mess here. But you probably want to play in it a little while, don't you? That's why you made it. But then let's go somewhere and let's learn how to do it. Just just how the, I mean if God, if God were your best friend, which incidentally he is, how would, how would you behave with him and how would he behave with you? That's what we want to remember. Okay? Well, that'll take us through tonight. To yeah, I think that's a good way to end. So we started at 2.49 and we finished at 2.57. So that's it for tonight. Thank you mm <laughs>